HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Heritage Radio Network's coverage of the 2017 Chefs Collaborative Summit is supported by the Julia Child Foundation. Get you a biscuit, put it in your pocket for later, which is what we do in the South. We walk around with biscuits in our pockets. Is that a biscuit in your pocket, Stephen, or are you just happy to see me? Nice. Anyway... Um, I, my name's Kim Severson, and uh, I'm going to just emcee the stage today. Um, I work for the New York Times, and I live in Atlanta, and I'm really glad everybody came here for the hurricane. Thank you. Um, so I'm going to start off with uh, Piper. Are you ready? Piper Davis. Thank you, Kim. And... I echo Kim's sentiments of thank you, everybody who made it. Um, as you look around, we've had some attrition, um, but that doesn't mean we're not going to have an amazing day today. I want to um, say good morning and introduce myself. I'm Piper Davis, and I am the Chef's Collaborative Board Chair right now. Um, I'd like to start us off by reading our mission and principles. And could every board member or former board member please stand up? You know how this goes. And I'm going to start us off by saying that the mission of the Chef's Collaborative, I mean, the Chef's Collaborative is a national nonprofit network with the mission to inspire, educate, and celebrate chefs and food professionals building a better food system. Together now, our vision is that sustainability becomes signature for every chef in the United States. Thank you. So... Sustainable practices as second nature for chefs. What on earth does that mean? Usually when we talk about sustainable practices, we're talking about environmental sustainability. And God knows today the environment needs us. We're facing wildfires, hurricanes, endangered species, a ravaged ocean, soil health, carbon, air quality. I could go on and on and on. But Sustainability is more than what is good for the earth. Sustainability is the ability to maintain and or survive. And as we look at food and sustainability, we must tackle the broader issues that affect all of our abilities to maintain and survive. And the optimist, the optimist in me would like to add thrive. 
Since the Chef's Collaborative was founded almost 25 years ago, the food landscape has changed dramatically for the better. There are examples all around us. One only has to look at the growth of farmer's markets, farm-to-table dining, walk the grocery store aisle, learn about public institutions embracing good food. This movement is full of revolutionaries who have challenged the status quo and demanded a change in food production. But look a bit deeper. This well-fed movement has left a lot of people out and many issues that affect our sustainability undiscussed. Our theme this year is growing community, owning the future. We are going to explore the power of growing this community and tackle many of the, challenging, the challenges that impede our collective ability to maintain, survive, and thrive. We have to continue, of course, to talk about serving tomatoes in season or the practice of whole animal butchery. But additionally, we must dig deep and embrace the uncomfortable topics from immigration to sharing financial information to addressing the role of white privilege in the food movement and amplifying voices that have remained unheard. No revolution ever happened without discomfort, conflict, and lively conversation. As you know, we are dealing with some weather. <laughs> and unfortunately, we've had some key folks cancel. But fortunately, this is a community of talented, inspiring, and smart people. We are very excited about our new revised programming for today. Um, and you will be get, you'll get information as it comes out. The plenary sessions are scheduled are to go as scheduled. The breakouts, unless you hear different, are to, st are to stay as scheduled. And the most important thing is the amazing dinner at Ann Quatrano's is still on, is going to be amazing, and the most important thing we do is make sure we support her and the other local chefs who've come out to put that dinner together. So please come out. We're so thankful to all of our sponsors, the local leaders and the scholarship winners who sh who've made the trip. Um, we're especially grateful to the host committee, led by Stephen Satterfield, who have done an amazing job. Thank you so much for everything. And I personally want to have a special thank you to the staff, Holly, Janine, Kate. These folks have been working their tails off to make this work well, to pivot and react to the situation. If you see them, take a moment and stop and say thank you. They really deserve it. And now I'd like to introduce the chair of our host committee, the author of Root to Leaf, and the James Beard award-winning chef from Miller Union here at Atlanta, Stephen Satterfield. When uh, Chefs Collaborative contacted me and asked if it was okay to host the summit here, I think they were just worried about how much work it was going to be for, for us. But I was like, of course, I'm honored to, to have it in our city, and I, I think um, one of the things that's so unique about Atlanta is that we have a really tight-knit food community. And as we were developing programming for the summit, um, I know Corey really wanted to um, highlight what happens here so we can get a sense of who these people are and why does it work so well. And so 
we started brainstorming, you know, what's the best way to, to get this message across? And um, we came up with a, basically sort of a hybrid of a slideshow and video, and we interviewed um, some amazing people that are doing incredible work here in the city. And we have that um, for you to view uh, this morning. And uh, Judith, are you going to? Yeah, uh, so I'd also like to bring up Judith Winfrey um, from Peach Dish here in Atlanta, and also a very good friend, and um, helped collaborate on, on this. <clears throat> Judith, um, Judith was instrumental in, in kind of realizing this idea, and we got an incredible um, videographer and photographer, Lizzie Johnston, Johnston, Johnson. Johnston. And um, she has done some incredible work. She's not here today, but she poured her heart and soul into this presentation, and it's really beautiful. Hey, y'all. It's uh, Sunday morning. I'm going to try not to get too preachy, <laughs> but if you want to say amen, that'd be all right. Amen. 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 So I, I really just wanted to have a moment to say to everyone in this room, to echo what Stephen said, how incredible our food community is and the leaders and the participants and the members of our food community. I'm really excited that you get to meet all of them and hear a few words from some of them. Um, but, and, and what they say, they talk about enjoying diversity and growing community and empowering community and changing the food system, values that I know all of you share. and. And I know that all of you have incredible communities of your own, wherever you are. And I wanted to take just a minute to challenge everyone in this room to nurture the community immediately around them, to look for the young people to mentor and learn from, to look for the people to bring into the fold. I think we're in for a wild couple of decades. None of us really know what's going to happen, except that Wild change is coming from the weather, from many different directions. Um, and, and it's more and more important that our communities stay strong and that we nurture them and that we're prepared to help work through whatever's coming. So thank you and amen. Amen. So uh, I'm Kim Severson. As I said, I work for the New York Times, but I've been based here in Atlanta for uh, about seven years now, which is amazing. And um, I've lived in a lot of different parts of the country and written about food from a lot of different parts of the country. And I have can honestly say what I've learned in living in the South has been uh, phenomenal in terms of um, how culture is expressed through food, um, you know, issues of race and inequality. Um, and also just deliciousness. Uh, I, the, the thing I, t I talk a lot about is how the South is very much like the Italy of America. I mean, it's, a, it's a distinct food culture here. The, the, you know, the greens you would eat in South Carolina could not be more different than the greens you might eat in Mississippi or what people have for breakfast in North Carolina completely uh, feels different than what they might eat in Tennessee. It's just like specific, even like county to county, like somebody will go, oh, yeah, I don't put any of those red peppers in my green. You know, like it's, it's so specific here. It's, it's an amazing place. So it is, um, it's really, um, it's changed me being down here and it's, and it's, um, it's a special place. So I hope you guys get to see that a little. <coughs> Certainly, um, 
you're getting to see it with how we're responding to the hurricane, which is, um, uh, I think, I just really am grateful that you guys are shifting gears and are going to feed people tomorrow. I came back from uh, just this weekend, I was in Houston for three or four days, or three days, um, reporting on what was happening with the hurricane down there in the food community. And I talked to, I don't know if you guys heard about uh, these bakers at this um, uh, Mexican chain bakery called El Bolillo. Um, and I talked to this guy, Jorge Yundes, who um, got stuck there with a couple of his baking buddies when the floods came. And they, he was stuck there for three days while his wife and his four kids were in their um, mobile home. And they were all surrounded by lakes of water and they couldn't get out. So they just baked. They just spent around the clock baking. And then the owner showed up on uh, Monday and took uh, all of the um, Mexican pastries and breads that they and tortillas they made and took them to the um, the shelter at the, um, the convention center. Um, I talked to folks at Mercy Chefs. I don't know if you guys know this group. Um, they're a faith-based group of um, professional cooks who have these mobile kitchens, commercial kitchens on wheels, and they right now are feeding Rockport, Texas, which is where the hurricane hit, and they still don't have any power down there, and they don't have, um, barely just got cell phone service left. So they serve about 1,200 meals a day, and it's for this community. Um, HEB, which is a grocer, just barely started a little storefront with a generator down there, but there's like literally no food and people don't have any houses. So the communal meal every day is by these guys from Mercy Chefs who are down there cooking. Um, and then I was in, uh, in Houston, and there's this group that came up that's the, um, uh, it started with, there was somebody who was getting calls, like, I've got, I've got a bunch of food I want to donate. Where do I go? And we have some people who need food. So um, Phaedra Cook started this group. She's with uh, Houston Food Finder. So she started this, just put up a little website that said, I have food, I need food. So if you needed food, you would write it if you had food. Meanwhile, in another kitchen at Reef, they were cooking a bunch of food and trying to get it to the Civic Center. And then there's a chef named Richard Knight, who was, um, just left the restaurant Hunky Dory, who was also trying to get it together and cook some food. So... All these people kind of came together and there was a homeless shelter that um, was abandoned that somebody had just purchased, they were gonna redevelop, and he gave them the keys. And so now they've got this like crazy, like they've got a, a, a grocery where if a chef wants to come and get extra food that's been donated and cook it and deliver it, they have, they're making like 1,200 sandwiches a day and then they're doing hot meals that are like really good food. Like, you know, when you're people, you know, the. Disaster food is all MREs, right? Or it's like heat and serve Salvation Army food. And so chefs are going in with like 500 meals to the, you know, to the National Guard who are posted and haven't seen a piece of fresh fruit for three days and, and they get a real salad and a piece of fruit. And so all these guys in Houston, the chefs just came together um, and started this thing they're calling the Midtown uh, Restaurant Collective. Um, and it's, I mean, it's an amazing effort, you know, the, the amount of food that the chef community came together. They, when I was there, they were just finishing up this thing called their disaster relief plan for restaurant communities. And they were just putting together, how you put together a quick website, how you organize all this. And they have this disaster plan. And now they're sending that plan they just wrote to all of their brothers and sisters in Florida. So if chefs there wanna, I mean, so it's really, I'm gonna tell you all, chefs get shit done. And I mean, that's. You know, so I, I have to say, really just literally got back from that and, and it was incredibly impressive. So, um, you know, you all should be, you're, you're part of a powerful community and feeding people is the essence of, of daily life. You know, there were 
um, 80,000 home kitchens that were obliterated in, you know, or flooded out in Houston. You know, that's the heart and soul of a community, that many home kitchens. And so when you guys cook for people and the way these guys are doing this, it's, it's impressive. So that's, I'm just amen to you all and to that effort. Uh, so I'm just going to be introducing people. We're going to, we have kind of crammed a lot in today um, to make up for uh, the programming that we're not going to have for tomorrow. So we're just going to get going with stuff. And our first person that I'm going to introduce is Paula Daniels. Um, she's the co-founder of the Center for Good Food Purchasing. Uh, however, I will say that she's a massive powerhouse in thinking about food policy. She started the Los Angeles um, Food Policy Council uh, when she was a public works commissioner, which I love wonky people like this. Uh, but anyway, Paula Daniels is going to come and talk about uh, government purchasing and maybe share a few personal anecdotes about your life. She's like, no, but I want to know. Yeah. Yeah, thank you, because my, you know, procurement government, how wonky can you get, right? It sounds really boring, but it's actually kind of, I think it'll, it's kind of interesting, uh, and I'll get to that in a second, but first, I want to thank the Chefs Collaborative for putting on this event. It's been a really special experience, and I have absolutely enjoyed being here in Atlanta. Had an amazing meal at Miller and Union last night. Thank you so much, Stephen. But the Chefs Collaborative, um, the work that you're doing is tremendous, and to see it in this setting too, I, I want to thank you for putting on a really lovely event and for being so nimble and gracious and graceful in the face of a very unique situation and still creating a really important shared experience for all of us um, and demonstrating how much um, food really is community, especially with how you're shifting things. So thank you so much for that. Um, and food really, um, I'm going to, this is Sunday morning, so I'm preaching to the choir because I think what I'm about to say you all already know, but food is about uh, place too right now, right? Except um, that it's more a place of the expression of what food really is and how it comes about in high-end restaurants uh, like the ones we've been able to enjoy here in Atlanta and also in high-end grocers. But um, otherwise, food is very much a global place, right? When I have a, a mental picture of our food system, um, it almost looks like a spider web. Uh, but in some ways, it, it kind of a spider web like encasing the world. But our food system is actually something like the giant web of LA's freeway system, too. And the original idea of freeways, just like sort of this original idea of putting food into a global marketplace, was about speed and transport and efficiency. But it turns out it doesn't really serve that particular purpose well anymore either. Most of the time our freeways are as clogged as bad arteries, particularly in Los Angeles. So our linear extractive food system, defining feature of the 20th century. <clears throat> and that's an era when the city of LA came of age. And the city of LA grew without regard for natural resources. Um, it engineered its way into existence. Um, it conveyed massive amounts of water, um, which actually led LA to be one of the top agricultural counties in the country before 1955. I don't know if you all knew that, but because of the conveyance of water, LA was the top agricultural county in the country. But then, of course, LA kept developing its way and hardscaping its way into being now one of the least agricultural counties, LA County itself. Um, we lost all sorts of farmland to housing and strip malls. The city grew with the automobile instead of the person at the center of its design, and it became an example of this disaggregated urban sprawl and uh, all the anonymity that that sort of thing brings. And using the freeway, sort of like using our global food system, means that maybe you'll get somewhere faster and efficiently, 
but you might have more of an isolated experience along the way. So when we set out to create the LA Food Policy Council, um, LA's food system was in a similar problem. So our food shed, and we defined our food shed as the 200 mile radius around Los Angeles, is actually a 10 county region, and that 10 county region around LA combined is now the most productive agricultural region in the country, and yet we still have over a million people in LA County that are food insecure. When I was in the mayor's office, uh, we were visited by, I, heard, I think her name is Audrey Rowe um, from the USDA, and she said, LA is the epicenter of hunger, the place where she sees the biggest problem. And we have all this bounty just around Los Angeles. We have well over 60% of the adults um, in the LA area are obese. And again, this inner region that produces over $11 billion of fruits and vegetables, where the fruit basket of the world doesn't reach all the right people. So fast food outlets are prevalent. Uh, we've got over 70% saturation of fast food outlets in South LA, which is one of our most disadvantaged communities. We have over 160 farmers markets. We have over 1,000 urban agriculture sites. We have over 100 community gardens, over 750 school gardens, and this doesn't even really make a dent in solving the healthy food access issues of our communities. And we have a lot of very large agriculture nearby in the Central Valley of California, which uses a lot of water, and most of that water goes into food that is exported. So we're basically exporting our water. So these are kind of the issues we were grappling with as a food policy council. And a lot of this was said a lot better than I just did by my friend Jonathan Gold. Uh, do you all, are you all familiar with Jonathan Gold? Yeah, the food critic, he's a Pulitzer Prize winning food critic and he won a Pulitzer Prize because he wrote about food as more of a sense of place and community. He, um, I don't know if you all knew this, but he got his start by interviewing all the taquerias around Pico Union in Los Angeles, or, or he was reviewing those at a time when you know food critics were uh, looking at only certain types of restaurants. He um, reviewed all the taquerias in a in a in a unique part of Los Angeles. So he was part of our Food Policy Council, and he wrote the foreword to a report that we prepared um, called the Good Food for All Agenda. So this report uh, came about after a year of preparatory work, which we undertook to create a Food Policy Council. This is, this is how it went, short version. This was the trajectory. In September of 2009, I pitched the idea to the mayor of Los Angeles, and I was one of his uh, senior officials at the time, but I pitched the idea to him that the city should have a leadership role in developing a regional food policy. And in addition to all the problems that I just mentioned to you, I also mentioned that LA County spends about $25 billion in food, and that one in seven jobs are um, in the food system. So it's, there's a lot of reasons why we should get have a leadership role in this issue. So he agreed. And then we convened a food policy task force of 20 leaders that were representative of uh, issues across the food system spectrum, and Jonathan Gold was one of them. I hired a food policy coordinator to keep the task force organized. We held lots of meetings, did the butcher paper thing with the voting, and, and we came up with ideas about what should be in a food policy framework for the region and about whether and how to create a food policy council. And then we issued our report in July of, of 2010. And Jonathan Gold wrote the foreword. And I, it's, he's got such beautiful writing, I wanted to read some excerpts, uh, two of the paragraphs out of the several that he wrote in our foreword. Los Angeles is the best place to eat right now, he wrote. A frieze of fine dining overlaying a huge patchwork of immigrant communities big enough and self-sustaining enough to produce exactly the food they want to eat. 
the famous insularity of Angelinos, our love for the pleasures available in our own backyards may affect the civic culture, but the anti-melting pot, the glorious mosaic, is excellent for cuisine. But even in the midst of plenty, at a time when the diversity of our restaurants, our splendid farmer's markets, and our splendid year-round growing climate are envied throughout the world, what the Los Angeles Food Policy Task Force calls good food is not available for all. A block from backyard vegetable gardens whose vitality could make you gasp, displays of cheap calorie, high profit, chemical-laden snacks, and vivid sugary sodas all but crowd out the produce sections of neighborhood markets. Children eat prepackaged school lunches designed to ease the problems of distribution rather than nutrition. Billions of consumer dollars that could go towards sustainable, fairly priced, locally grown food goes out of the region and out of the country. So this is what we set about doing something about. So we started by arriving at a common understanding of what we wanted to achieve. So what did we want to see from a regional food system? So we came up with a term that I think is used in a lot of places, but it's, it's one that we use to organize our community, and we came up with the term good food. And we borrowed that actually from another task force member and chef, Evan Kleiman. I'm not sure if you all know of her, but she had two restaurants. Yay, Evan, in Los Angeles. And she also was, uh, still is, the host of a radio show called Good Food on our local public radio station. It's also a podcast if you all are interested in listening. She goes to the farmer's markets and interviews a lot of people on a bunch of important ideas around food. So she was on our task force. We asked her if we could borrow the term. She said, hey, it's a pretty common word. So, but we, so we used it and we developed our own definition of good food as healthy, affordable, fair, and sustainable, similar to your principles. And then we envisioned a good food system, and, and our, our priorities sound a lot like the sustainability principles of the Chef's Collaborative. I'll just go through them quickly. Prioritizes the health and well-being of our residents, makes healthy, high-quality food affordable, contributes to a thriving economy where all participants in the food supply chain receive fair compensation and fair treatment, protects and strengthens our biodiversity and natural resources throughout the region, ensures that good food is accessible to all. So those were our principles. We wanted the city to be a leader in building this good food system, and so we did agree there should be a food policy council. We felt that we needed to start by having an organization which had this as its core mission, and part of its core mission would be to bring together the different sectors and perspective from across the food system spectrum uh, to agree on what we could do to help set things in the right direction. And once we started holding the meetings, we found out that there were a lot of people interested in this idea. Our open meetings, we, we still have about 200 people coming per meeting to when we open up the meetings. The city, it's a big city. So the city is, itself is 500 square miles, 4 million people, and the city is within the county, which is over 4,500 square miles and 12 million people. So you may have heard the saying that Los Angeles is 72 suburbs in search of a city. Have you heard that? <laughs> it's not true. It's actually 88 suburbs in search of a city. <laughs> but and that part's true. But, um, but the thing is, we do search. I mean, if anything, that is the defining feature of Los Angeles. When you're asked as an Angelino, what, what do you think of as a defining feature of LA? Many of us talk about that. Right, Corey? That we're searching. We're always on an inward explanation, exploration of who we are. Some, I mean, we have a lot of people come to LA in search of fame. We have some people come in search of mild weather. We have many people coming in search of some other dream, making a decent living. 
but it is a city of searchers. So it was once a small Mexican village is now the third largest city in the world in terms of gross metropolitan product. We are third behind New York and Tokyo. So this searching, this collective searching, this urge toward something else, it's kind of around us all the time in an unseen way, like our weather. Um, and we're ever open to innovation and invention. When you have like 88 suburbs in search of itself, it means the will is always to flow towards something that will define us in a way that defies our geography. And I think that's um, what food policy does. A comprehensive food policy, it urges toward a collective. It transcends geography because it redefines our connection to place and community. And it recognizes that we're intrinsically a part of the cycle of nature and that we bear responsibility to the world of food beyond our plate and beyond our time. So this idea of creating a food policy council took off like wildfire once we got it started. We built it and they came, basically, is what happened. Because we soon became the backbone organization to over 750 organizations working on some aspect or another of food system change. Um, the work ran the gamut of sustainable production, localized distribution, healthy food access, urban agriculture, and every time we had a particular project, we had working group meetings and we vetted it, and again, we had about 100 or so people working on one project alone. So the structure we used to manage this, um, it's something that um, folks have uh, commented on, so I thought I'd take just a little bit of time to explain it to you. Um, and it was a model, really, that was born out of necessity because we have a fragmented, um, city county government in Los Angeles. We don't have a combined city and county government. So the city of LA doesn't run the Department of Public Health, nor does it run the school district. So we have to work through influence and collaboration quite a bit. So our structure um, to follows that model somewhat. We have a backbone staff and the LA Food Policy Council of eight staff now. Um, I, I started with me and the Food Policy Task Force and we built, built, built. So by the time I left, um, we had eight staff and we still have about eight staff and it's growing. I turned the reins over to, to one of my staff members to become executive director and um, started a new nonprofit. But um, we have a 40-member board, and then we have the working groups. The working groups operate like subcommittees of the board, and the working groups are open to all. And originally, we had the board members who were representative of the food system spectrum and then also were very familiar with our agenda and our goals and our principles and how we wanted to work together. They were seeded into the working groups as chairs of the working groups once they got started, but then the working groups were um, you know, self-organized and started picking their own leaders. But we stayed involved and the staff stays involved to help guide um, the process. So the board I want to just tell you about because the board is a unique and important part of the Food Policy Council. We deliberately wanted high-level decision makers. So if it's an organization, we want the CEO or the executive director or as high-level in terms of decision-making in that particular organization. So we had the USDA rural director, still do. We have the, county, the head of the County Department of Public Health. We have the head of the Food Service Division of LA Unified School District, the president of the largest regional food processor in California. We have a vice president from Whole Foods. Um, soon to be who knows what, but a Whole Foods. And we have two organic farmers. One was on the Ventura County Farm Bureau and was the head of the Farm Bureau. We have um, heads of UC Cooperative Extension. We have the CEO of the Food Bank. We also have labor. We have the UFCW, the United Food and Commercial Workers, and a, a leader from the LA um, chapter there. We have the executive director of the Food Chain Workers Alliance. We have academics from Occidental College and UCLA and a number of other businesses and uh, 
advocacy organizations, and then of course we have chefs. So, I mean, in my view, you can't, you can't put together a food policy council without chefs. I, it may go without saying, but I want to say it. Chefs are the leading edge of food. Chefs, you know this, you're the artisans, you're the artists, you're the ones who see and feel certain things before the rest of us do, and you bring that message back of what's beyond the next horizon. So in that way, chefs are the voice of food, and many of our important ideas came from chefs who had been uh, up there feeling, sensing, and knowing what needed to happen next. You know, I mean, chefs are the ones who I think, you all know this too, but who've re really made a difference in local food. I saw it and know of it from in Hawaii. I'm from Hawaii. And, um, I, you know, I think you all know this story in other ways in other parts of the country too. But in Hawaii, because of a century of agriculture, monoculture cropping in, in sugar and uh, pineapple, Hawaii really is not able to feed its own population. It once was able to pre-contact times, and the population was, it's by some estimates, reasonably close to where it is now. But it's not able to anymore because it's completely dependent on the export-import machine. And so what they say there is a matter of conventional wisdom that if the cargo ships stopped coming to Hawaii, they'd be, uh, the grocery stores would be out of food in a week. I heard the same story about the New England area from um, Michael Levitin last night at our dinner. The difference is in Hawaii, you don't have a truck crossing a border at some point in time. You have hurricanes coming to Hawaii, too. You know, and there's a five-day cargo crossing, and it's a five-hour airplane flight. So they're very concerned about that in Hawaii. And it was chefs that really started making that point in the 1990s when sugar left Hawaii. And they're the ones who started saying, we need to start working with our local farmers. So Hawaii actually went from like less than 5% local to, I think, they're close to 10 to 15%. And now Hawaii has a goal of 30% local by 2030. So we'll see how they do it. But chefs are a big part of that. So um, in the Food Policy Council, um, we created a couple of programs that, uh, one of which I wanted to talk to you about. We did a lot of policy initiatives. Um, one, one among them was to an effort to legalize street vending, and that actually was an idea that came to us originally from Jonathan Gold, who uh, brought that up. But then we created a Healthy Neighborhood Market Program, which includes capacity building, training, and conversion assistance for neighborhood markets to source and sell healthy foods. And then we have the Good Food Purchasing Program, which is, um, which I'll talk about briefly. Um, we started this in order to use the purchasing power of Los Angeles and Los Angeles major institutions, and to use the market signals from major institutions to send signals to the agricultural community about what kind of food our values would reflect our values. LAUSD has $150 million food budget per year. They serve about 750,000 to a million meals a day. So it's the biggest food service provider in, um, in, LA, in LA, and then I think in close to the biggest food service provider in the state. Um, so they were our target. We had the city adopt this program, but really the target was the LA Unified School District. We created a good food purchasing program that works, um, I'm assuming you all are familiar with LEED um, certification for buildings. Um, so it's similar to that, it's analogous to that, in that we have five value categories. They are local economies, um, environmental sustainability, fair labor practices, animal welfare, and nutrition. And in each of those categories, we have a baseline, so the, um, and we have um, metrics and, and ways, uh, measurable ways for the institution that adopts our guidelines 
to meet the goals of purchasing at least 15% of their purchases in these categories and to work up to 25%. And then we take their, uh, they agree to give us their data, we look at all their purchasing data, we rank them according to the, um, how their purchases go, and then we provide them a star rating. So I can give you the details of it if you're interested, I'll save that maybe for a little later. Um, sorry, I'm going on a little bit. I'll, 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 I'll wrap this up in a little bit, but the, the story I want to tell you about it is that um, in LAUSD, once they adopted our program, they went from less than 10% local sourcing of produce to an average of 60% local, uh, local sourcing of produce in a year. It created 150 new jobs, too, in regional food processing. So we decided to expand that program, and now we're part of an, now it's the National Center for Good Food Purchasing, and we're now in San Francisco and Oakland. Chicago just adopted it. New York's on the way. Austin will be adopting it soon. We have 18 other school districts around the country who are also interested in adopting this program, and we're talking with um, Eric Oberholzer of Tender Greens about a restaurant version. So that's all in its way. Um, I was gonna, I wanted to talk a little bit about this idea before I wrap up and go to questions about um, local, right? We all support it quite a bit. And I think a lot of us characterize this movement as maybe alternative. Uh, some people call it as an alternative food system. And I wanna resist that term a little bit because that means something other than, and I really do feel like um, that can sometimes you know, apply to marginalized rather than the mainstream movements. And rather than look at it as an either or proposition, I prefer to think of it as a both and proposition way that we can go and to develop measurable targets. And wanna suggest that maybe what we could do as a next step is think about coming together and creating measurable targets in each of our regions for these types of food-based procurement and, and, and collecting it up in our anchor institutions. So I know an analogy to think of is with our renewable energy system. So a long time ago, we didn't think that we could ever change our dependence on fossil fuels. In the 1970s, and Jimmy Carter was actually a leader in this, in trying to open the door on changing our dependence on fossil fuels by requiring that a percentage of utility electricity be provided by independent producers. Fast forward to the 21st century and we have renewable portfolio standards with percentages of targets for renewable energy, 20% by 2020. And I think the more we do this as regions for a good food system type of work, the more I think we can start making that change so that it becomes this regional food system becomes the powerhouse that I think it can be in the way renewable energy has for our country as well. I think I'm out of time. <laughs> so I had some more philosophical thoughts that I was gonna say, but let me just end with this one quote. Um, and since it's a Sunday morning, it'll be from one of my favorite reverends, Martin Luther King. Before you finish eating breakfast in the morning, you've depended on more than half the world. This is the way our universe is structured. This is its interrelated quality. We aren't gonna have peace on earth until we recognize the basic fact of the interrelated structure of all reality, which really is kind of a declaration of interdependence. And um, the idea of moving toward more of an interdependent way of looking at things, a grammar of harmony is something that's being echoed throughout the world through this organization. Um, you hear it through Prince Charles of Wales, you hear it in a number of places. And I just want to 
close by thanking the Chefs Collaborative for moving that grammar of harmony, for the language of interdependence, for moving the community of food work together, and also to call for an ecology of democracy where we work as a community in making these things happen. Thank you. Sorry. Thank you, Paula. We have time for just a couple questions. Um, and you want to ask her about Amazon, what that means for any other questions? Well, if we're going to ask about Amazon, let's bring Mike Le Leviton up here. Cause... Yeah. Do you have a question, Corey? Yeah. What's the, what do you think is the biggest change in L.A. as a result? What, I mean, what's the, does it change the fabric of, the, of, of L.A. in any way, that, we, that you've gone through this big process? And you've, it, what feels different about L.A. to you? The Food Policy Council has a place in Los Angeles now that it didn't when we started the, um, the, the organization itself. We did a lot of other work in terms of making sure that this was something that political parties were engaged in. Um, we wanted to move it past, so I, I created it as part of an initiative of, of Mayor Virgosa of Los Angeles, where this is where I was working, but um, we also knew that we were terming out in 2013, and we didn't want to have it die with the administration, so wanted to make sure that it lasted past our administration, which is why we institutionalized it, and then built it into the political discourse as well. So we had a mayor's, um, we had uh, candidates running for mayor. We held a, had a candidate questionnaire and asked the mayors to fill out the candidate questionnaire on their views on food policy and um, what they felt about the Food Policy Council and whether they would support it. And they both agreed fully that they would um, and, and said a lot of positive things about that. So starting to integrate it into the political discourse, our city council members um, became very actively engaged before we even left. We hold Food Day um, every October and have um, uh, recognition of community food leaders, but also it's an opportunity for council members to bring motions that move food policy forward. So basically the, the whole discourse around food has changed into one of political ownership of the issue instead of polit political ignorance of the issue. And even in expanding through Chicago, um, the adoption of the Good Food Purchasing Program became a, came, excuse me, became a campaign pledge by uh, Rahm Emanuel when he ran for re-election. So it's, it's woven into the fabric of political and cultural conversation now. That's great. Thank you. One more question. Thank you. Um, can you say a little bit about how um, you best prepared family-scale farms to participate in the purchasing program? I'm yeah. thinking 50 acres or less. What kind of barriers did you see for that group, and how were they helped to participate? Yeah. We have, like, a set of um, criteria for and a scale. So we have a level one, two, and three in our good food purchasing program. And in with small farms, so with um, the local economies, the entry point, like a baseline way to enter into uh, the local economy category is to purchase locally and then from any size farm. But more points are available to the good food purchaser if they buy from a smaller farm, smaller size farm. So um, we define mid-size, we did define it by acreage, we're moving now to a dollar definition we're tracking with the USDA, but before we had defined it like mid-size is 180 to 499 acres and um, smaller scale was less than 180. So they get even more points if it's smaller scale. So that's, that's how we incorporate it. And then we also have a place for minority and 
um, small minority women farmers to get extra points for that too. If people want to get a hold of you um, and find out about either doing, tapping into some of your resources or getting involved in food policy council movements in their own towns, what's the best way for people to find you? Um, so the, the Good Food Purchasing Program, we have a, the Center for Good Food Purchasing has a website, and I have an email there. But to find out more about food policy councils, I actually would recommend the Johns Hopkins Center for Livable Future. They have a food policy network. And they have an incredible resource of information for food policy councils there. Thank you so much. Yeah. That's impressive. It's a, um, somebody's going to be on my source list now forever. So, um, so our next uh, speaker, this is where I get to fangirl out a little, Martha Mendoza is uh, is coming up next. She's the Associated Press reporter who won a Pulitzer in 2016 for um, Seafood from Slaves uh, and, and has some amazing story. Come on up here, girl. Um, it really, truly did the kind of food journalism that I think matters and will tell you everything you need to know about why you are buying the kind of seafood you're going to buy. So thank you, Martha. Hi, chefs. Um, thank you for the opportunity to speak to you. This is my favorite thing, to talk to people who are actually at the front line of buying and preparing and serving seafood. Um, the story I'm going to tell you is um, hopefully going to reinforce to you why you have to spend extra money to source so carefully. Um, or it may raise awareness about where, how you want to source more carefully. Let me see if these slides will go. Yes, okay. For years, um, we had been hearing from people in relief shelters in Southeast Asia that they had run away from boats. And New York Times, The Guardian, Bloomberg, AP, which is where I work, and others had reported that people said they had run away from boats, that they had been enslaved on at sea. And um, we all reported this, and we all said that the seafood can end up in the United States, and nothing was happening. And so with my colleagues who are here with me in spirit, Margie, Robin, and Esther, we said, let's find people who are enslaved, and let's follow their fish all the way back to the United States or Europe, if that is in fact happening. And so we began talking to people at shelters about where were you at sea, and where might we find people who are currently enslaved. And increasingly, they pointed us to this area between Papua New Guinea and Australia at the center of the slide. We got a um, Google Earth above <laughs> photo of a place called Benjina, which is a little Indonesian island in the middle of the sea. And we saw what looked like a lot of boats on this side all lined up, a fish processing plant perhaps, and then some village on the other side. We went there and began talking to people on boats. I am going to be jumping ahead because we have a compressed schedule, but I'm happy to talk more in detail about this as we go. We began talking to men on boats and realized they weren't Indonesians. They were from Myanmar, which, for those of you who aren't terribly familiar with the ge um, geography in this area, is about 1,000 or more miles away. And we couldn't figure out why they were there. You can't make a phone call. There's no airstrip on this place. It took days to get there, but we didn't speak Burmese. And so we climbed to the top of the hill at the time when you can text and texted to Esther and said, Esther, get over here. <laughs> Esther Tusan, who was in Burma. And so she, in the middle of a vacation, dropped everything and came 
took a few days. But when she got there, the men began showing her that they had fake IDs that said that they were Thai or Indonesian because it was a Thai fishing company and they were in Indonesia and those would be the only nationalities allowed to fish, but that they were actually from Burma. So we asked to see more, more of these men and they took us to a graveyard with about 70 graves. They had Thai names above them. These were Burmese, Cambodian, and Laotian men who had died at sea and who had been brought back and buried here. I say men, but they're about the age of my own boys who are 22 and 24. Um, we asked to see more and they took us inside that company and um, the men who would run away potentially when their boats were in at shore were being put in cages. And Esther was chased out of this area and so we found a sympathetic dock worker, taught him how to use a GoPro and he went back up to the cage and began taking short interviews while Esther sat in the office with the manager trying to explain what she was doing there. Once we knew that these men were trapped, and we did, had no idea how many, I became obsessed with the fish. Um, I wanted to know what species they were, and more importantly, what boat they were going on to. And um, it was becoming increasingly dangerous to be on the island. Clearly, we were not in this place for friendly reasons. And um, so once we had that information, we left with very heavy hearts because these young men were trapped there and not being treated okay. Using satellite imagery, we followed the boat for two weeks into this port, Samut Sakan, which is just south of Bangkok in Thailand. And um, as it approached, we positioned ourselves. And I'm doing the collective we because it's Margie, Robin, and Esther and I. And there it was, the silver sea line. And they were unloading the same fish that we had seen being put into it in Benjina. And so um, hiding out in the back of pickup trucks with shaded windows, we followed those big metal trucks into the factories. Um, has, have any of you ever been in Thailand? It's so hot <laughs> in the back of a pickup truck. <laughs> and we didn't pack food. And we were eating horrible McDonald's. <laughs> and it was hot, but it was exciting also and worth it. And we've done this again and again. We followed it into the factories and recorded the names of the factories it was going into, and then we used customs bills of lading, and this was really my, my, uh, my area of what I worked on the most, sorting through millions of customs bills of lading to figure out from the factories we saw the seafood entering where it was going. So here's a consignee, Beaver Street Fisheries in Jacksonville, Florida, buying from Kingfisher in Samutsukan. Kingfisher was one of the trucks and factories we saw the seafood going to. And it was frozen wild caught snapper fillets. And they were actually branding it there in Thailand. Some of it was branded in Thailand, some of it wasn't of the seafood. And so that had me also visiting a lot of importers in the US. I went to Seafood Expo. Have any of you been here? And. Um, told the National Fisheries Institute what I was doing, and they put out a blog to everybody on the floor. Martha Mendoza, a Pulitzer Prize winning reporter, is working on a story about labor abuse in seafood, and we've already talked to her. When I saw the blog, um, I decided to stay in the press room until our photographer and videographer could get what they needed, which apparently was free samples. Um, and <laughs> then I went out and tried to talk to people. In all of my investigative reporting, I think that it's critical to give people an opportunity to respond. And so even when people didn't want to talk to me, I had dossiers. I've seen you know, this come to your, be imported by your company, and I want to give you an opportunity to respond. And a couple did. And of course, nobody wants to hear this. And these were all MSC certified importers. This was all people who had auditors in their supply chain. Um, 
And so in the end, we were able to track it back to a number of brands. This was also with a second round um, of Thai shrimp that we followed. I'm going to go quickly through these, but you can see that it was getting very familiar all over the place. Um, once we did our stories, which exploded in the media and newspapers, radio, TV, all around the world, every day, um, about half of the people in the world will see a story by the Associated Press, and this was one of those stories. The Indonesian authorities went to the island and began taking interviews of the men. And we said, you know, talking to them is going to get them killed when they go back to their boat. And they said, it's okay, we're going to take them with us. So these were the International Organization for Migration, the Indonesian Navy, and um, other Indonesian authorities. And so they went out with megaphones and said in several different languages, um, if anybody wants to come and have been trapped here, we'll take you. And people began jumping out of boats and running out of the forest up above because they had escaped up there and pouring into town. And when they heard what was happening, there was uh, just a, um, it, was, it was just stunning. Um, and they gathered them down on the docks. They didn't have boats to take them, so they commandeered the same boats where they had been enslaved. They commandeered them to rescue them on. And um, it started pouring rain, and um, it was Passover, and it was an exodus. It was incredible. And um, in the end, 2,000 men have been freed. Um, but when they gathered, the first 500 at an evacuation center, we went there and began surveying them. And what they told us scared us to death. Between the time we published and when the rescuers came, a number of boats had fled the island. And so we had more boats to track. And we began looking at the sister ships of the Silver Sea to see where they had historically been fishing and um, learned that they were in this area above Papua New Guinea. I called the Pentagon, NASA, um, Pack fleet, which is the military in this region, and then finally private companies that have high-resolution cameras in space and ask them to take a picture to see if we could find the boats. I really didn't know what I was doing, but it seemed like a good idea. Um, because we couldn't go to Papua New Guinea where they would be docking, it was extremely unsafe. I got an estimate from a security service um, and they said that it would cost $10,000 for us to go in, and that their, their bid included what it would cost to get our bodies out if we were killed. <laughs> I was like, okay, no, plan B. Um, anyways, <laughs> they shot the photo and sent this to me, and I was very disappointed. But then their analysts showed me this, and those sure looked like the type of boats that we had seen at Benjina, and they were doing something called transshipment, where they offload the seafood at sea, which is legal in many places, but what it means is that these fishing boats never have to come into shore because these large cargo reefers in the middle can provide supplies to the small boats and um, take the fish off the small boats so that the small boats never, ever come in, or many years. We thought it was ours, but we shot the photo over to Myanmar, where some of the rescued people from Benjina were, and they said, confirmed that those were the boats. And so this is the Indonesian fishing minister who sent an Australian drone over and seized the boats and freed more men. And this is a man who had been gone for 22 years, reuniting with his mom in Cambodia. I'm sorry, in Myanmar. His name is Mint Nang. And she had never given up hope. He had left at um, 14 with a broker who said that it would be gone for a year, and he was excited about sending money home. And when they reunited, they were just screaming and crying, and his sister recognized him as well. And that's my presentation.
See, that's, that's the power of fake news, you know, right? So anyway, thank you so much. Does anybody have any questions? And uh, everybody's going back to their restaurants and looking at their labels, right? So. I have a, a comment more than a question. Uh, I sit on the food service roundtable at the Monterey Bay Aquarium, and it's a yeah. convening of the largest food service operators in the world who are trying pre-competitively to figure out how to kind of solve some problems, and they are very focused on not being caught up in the seafood slavery supply chain, and your work has done more to actually change the behavior of the largest food service companies in the world, and I want to just applaud you and recognize you in front of this group. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Martha. Thank you. Um, we, we have been overwhelmed, and I don't think we actually, I mean, you're saying that, I don't think we comprehend the impact we had. We, you know, obsess on these men, and they go home, and we see that there's some task force being made, or some meetings, or some policy changes. There was an important um, federal loophole closed, but sometimes someone says something to me like that, and I think, just like the previous speaker, it's the policies and, and the, the programs that actually are being moved. Um, that, and, and that really motivates us because, as you probably know, we've done much more since then, yeah. Is there another question? Um, and is there, oh, hang on a second. That's my exercise for today. Just want to know if you can point us to a website or some resources where we can get information about brands to avoid, labels to avoid. This is unfortunately complicated. Um, I do know the uh, Monterey Bay Aquarium is trying to put labor into their standards. Until this came out, a lot of the environmental groups, Oceana and et cetera, were looking at the fishermen as the bad guys, right? Because they're looking at sustainable and illegal seafood. And so the people pulling the seafood out are the bad guys and had to stop and pivot in their thinking and think, oh, maybe they're also um, part of the problem of illegal and unsustainable seafood. Um, but what do you do? If you boycott, then that may not be the change that needs to happen. Maybe what needs to be is additional pressure to um, make these jobs better and make them legitimate because there are fish, you know, fishing businesses that need to happen and people need jobs. So I can point you to our series of stories or perhaps the organizers can. I can tell you that we've gone on to Hawaiian seafood and um, I would, I mean, my, my biggest recommendation and I'm hearing it from anybody I talk to here, you're, you're taking, you're eyeballing your own supply chains here. And um, that's not easy and that's time consuming, but you've got to know it's worth it. Do you eat much seafood now? <laughs> I, was, I was explaining to someone over breakfast, I've never eaten any type of meat in my life. It's just how I was raised. It's not a philosophical thing. I can prepare meat for people. I've been in many slaughterhouses, um, but it's- but You do not eat, you, no seafood, no meat. I've never eaten anything with a face. We'll make you some lamb. You'll be okay. Um, that's right, some pork. Is there any last question here? Oh, yes, hold on. Thank you. This was absolutely fascinating. It bespeaks the need for trust in our food systems. And I'm wondering to what degree uh, chefs can be outspoken about ag-gag policies that we see, particularly in some states in the United States, about land-based meat production as well as seafood-based productions. Now, people don't know that ag-gag stuff is uh, 
legislation that gets passed so you can't take pictures of uh, hog operations, this limits other kinds of public information that can be um, delivered even if it's um, companies that are working with public land or public uh, laws and they've gotten quite restrictive. Have you what about ag, so, ag laws? Uh, well, I'm always asking at my, my local chicken egg factory if I could see the chickens, please. Um, but I can't speak to advocacy in terms of what, what people should and shouldn't do. I do know that it was interesting for us to hear after we did this story, they asked the wait staffs at some Darden restaurants to keep track of how many people were asking about where their seafood came from and report that back. And I thought that's... That's a subtle impact, right? And so it does make a difference for a diner simply to ask the question. Um, yeah. What are you working on next? I, I, I can only tell you that we hope to have it out in the next week or two, and it involves enslaved people processing seafood abroad that is entering American seafood chains through a number of importers, and, um, and, it's, and they should, the importers should know. And that's coming out, you think, a couple weeks? Next, we're trying for today, but it's going to be a few weeks, yeah. Okay, yeah. great. Ladies and gentlemen, Martha Miller. That's just, it's so impressive. This, um, the lineup is amazing for chefs, so thank you. Corey, whoever, where's Corey? Corey Brown, thank you. Um, and we're just gonna keep on rolling. The hits are just keep on coming here. So next up, we have uh, Tunde Wei, who's a, a writer and a chef, and Julia Bainbridge, who's an eater and a writer and a recent um, Atlanta tra uh, transplant with Atlanta Magazine. Um, are you, where are you guys? You coming? Okay, they're gonna be doing a little karaoke, um, Ebony and Ivory, and so they're gonna sing first. And, uh, but anyway. I think. Is it on? Yeah. Okay. Right. Um, <laughs> uh, I'll tell you a little bit about Tunde. I'm Julia, as Kim said. Um, Tunde came to the U.S. from Nigeria some 20 years ago, right? Around 20. 17. 17. Yeah. Um, he's a cook. I know you don't really use the term chef. Yeah, because right. I'm not professionally trained. Yes, he's yeah. not professionally trained, but he has cooked professionally, most recently at his former stall in New Orleans um, and at his traveling dinner series called Blackness in America. Um, those dinners fed people, but they were also explorations of race in America. Various guest speakers um, would help stoke conversation about all kinds of black experiences, as well as racism, violence, and cultural appropriation. Um, Tunde lives in New Orleans and writes most often in the San Francisco Chronicle about these same topics. Um, and that's what we're getting into today. And yes, thanks sir. for being here. <laughs> um, before I get into his latest piece, I want to say that Tunde and I have been, we've had phone conversations and dinners and multiple emails back and forth about the topic at hand, white supremacy in our dining culture. And I'm still working through it all. It's at once simple and obvious even, um, and at the same time complicated. We're barely gonna scratch the surface in this small amount of time that we have, so I urge you to read Tunde's work um, where he continues to talk about this and, and continue thinking about it on your own. Um, I know that I am. So I'm gonna get to your latest piece in a second, so let's not okay. use up that example, the Bon Appetit example. Um, but uh, first, if you will, in some emails we had back and forth before this, I said that I thought that we value food coming from different places and different people now more than ever, and you disagreed with that. Can you expand on that and um, 
and tell us what kind of food it is you see Americans valuing. Yeah, um, so I think that, well, I'm an immigrant, uh, I'm Nigerian. Um, currently, I'm undocumented. So I came in here as a student, I fucked up, I lost my status because I wasn't going to class, I was lazy. Uh, and um, so being undocumented has been a huge part of my life in America. And then two years ago, um, I was detained uh, because of my status and I spent uh, three, three weeks in detention in El Paso. So I'm saying all this to say that when I think of food and I think of um, what we value, uh, and so like the topic right now, or one of many topics right now is immigration. I think of how we conceive of immigrants and how we sort of like want to shoot, um, shoehorn them into a specific um, category, um, either as a problem or as a product, right? So uh, a problem is somebody who is like fleeing conflict, right? And so that person serves um, as an example of how generous America is. Uh, as a product is, you know, well, immigrants have great food and um, they work hard. Um, but the, the, the challenge with these two framings is that we're just like people, like we work hard and we're lazy, you know? We cook good food and we cook um, shitty food. Um, and if we don't serve these two um, categories, um, then our usefulness expires. And so we sometimes conflate the celebration of immigrants in those two terms and of food in those two terms. Like we understand people who provide a service or provide like our food as people who are hardworking or as people who cook good food, but we don't see them as complete people. Um, so I don't think that's, um, I don't think that's proper valuing. Like we can't value somebody until we understand them completely. We understand them outside of what they give to us, outside of what we can get from them. Um, so I, I think that what we value in food is like the capacity to extract, like what we can get from people. Like can we like eke out um, more labor from people? Can we um, get people to show us the food that they grew up eating so that we can um, be more um, knowledgeable about the world? It's, it's, it's not uh, an even uh, relationship. Well, yeah, speaking of immigrants, uh, something we were talking about just before this, and representation in the media, uh, there was this Bon Appetit immigrant issue, right? A themed issue. Yeah, at the beginning um, of this year. And I kind of thought it was great, and you didn't. <laughs> <laughs> so can you explain uh, yeah, what so, was going on with that issue, why you find it problematic? Yeah, so, uh, so Bon Appetit in uh, February, I think, released this issue all immigrants, and this was on the hill of, uh, on the hills of, um, interesting word hill with Trump, but uh, on the hills of the election of Trump, and so there was all of this simultaneous anti-immigrant sentiment and um, solidarity, sort of like working together. And so Bon App decided to re release this um, piece as a way to show um, solidarity. Well, the problem with the piece, in my opinion, was Bonap didn't like make a stand 
Um, there was no obvious representation of what their politics are in the piece. But it's just, never been a magazine that does that. Well, to my, to my point, right, which is, uh, how, which is sort of like the commodification of people, of um, people's pain, in a sense, right? So it was like, you know, we, we love immigrants because immigrants cook good food, and if you love food, then you love people who don't look like you. You know, just like this very um, simple premise. And, you know, what I think is interesting is there are very few people, I think, who are in power, whether it's politically or socially, who would say they don't like immigrants. You know, Donald Trump says he loves immigrants. His wife is an immigrant. You know, so just saying that you love immigrants and, like, putting out an issue uh, that that somehow supports that is not enough. Like, you have to take a political position. I think Trump has, has taken a political position. And so if you, if you are trying to, um, if you're trying to make a comment about that position, then take a position. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, another Bon Appetit issue, okay. where I used to work, by the way. Um, does, does anybody here work for um, Bon Appetit? <laughs> <laughs> okay. No. Uh, so your latest piece for the Chronicle published yeah. in August is titled Look to the Food World to Understand America's White Supremacy Problem. And in it, <clears throat> you focus on Bon Appetit's most recently published Best New Restaurants list. Um, can you get into what you found problematic about the number one pick for people who haven't read the article? Uh, has anybody read the article? Okay, so I live in New Orleans and uh, I, I think, to me, the most prominent thing about New Orleans cuisine is how black it is. Like, New Orleans, to me, is a black city, is a black food city. New Orleans is the most, um, I think, the most distinct or the most original or and the most original food city in America. Uh, maybe, like, the Bay is, 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 the, is uh, America's restaurant city, but New Orleans is America's food city. And I think that when we go into food and we go into New Orleans, that we have to hold that reality true. And we have to um, be honest and honor that truth. So Bon App did uh, their 10 best hot restaurants, new restaurants, and they chose a restaurant called Turkey and the Wolf. Um, and it's... Um, for the number one. For the number yeah. one restaurant. And it's like this sort of like ironic... Um, space, you know, um, it's kitschy. The food is, um, I guess, uh, conventional lunch staples or sandwiches, um, and then just like with a chef twist to it. So there's a lot of, like one um, uh, sandwich has like potato chips like crunched into it. Just some American shit, which, you know, I, I didn't grow up here, so I, I, I don't connect to, um, to that sort of food. But I, I ate there, the food was delicious. But um, I think naming that restaurant as the best new restaurant, um, to, in, in my mind, does two things. Obviously, it erases um, the reality and the history of um, black cooks and black chefs working in the city historically and uh, in the present as well. And the more, um, I guess, subtle thing for me was that space, sort of like the aesthetic of the restaurant, the food itself, the food was 
um, I think the best way I can describe it is um, histrionic, just like melodramatic, like heavy sauced and like rich. Um, and then the actual space, physical space with like purposefully cheap plastic, uh, not, not plastic, um, um, silverware and plateware. Like, it's like kind of white trashy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, uh, you said it, not me. But, um, uh, but that aesthetic isn't one that is usually um, celebrated, right? And when, we ha when you have all these top 10 lists, there's usually, they, they're usually signifiers. Um, the kind of restaurants that are placed in this list have to like, look a certain way, and the food has to be a certain way. And that, in my opinion, has always been the excuse for why um, uh, black-owned restaurants or restaurants owned by other people of color haven't made those lists. They, they usually make the cheap eats lists. They don't make the best of lists. And so that, the realization that, that the rules aren't permanent and they are changeable and that what is being chased isn't a particular standard of um, deliciousness or aesthetic, but it's whiteness, you know? That a white person can inhabit a space and transform the space in such a way that it becomes uh, the best restaurant, uh, according to Bon App. Um, it speaks volumes, because they are, in New Orleans, if we're looking for the sort of like uh, quirkiest designed, richest, uh, the quirk quirkiest designed restaurants serving the richest food, they're everywhere in the city, you know, and they're black owned, you know, but I think that um, the presence of, you know, a white owner and a, sort of like a white perspective for some reason lends a different sort of credibility, lends a different sort of uh, like sexiness or some shit, I don't know. But that's like that's that's what was chosen. So I, I think it's it's important to to see sort of like the underlying ideology behind those choices and, and those lists. Yeah, to get to New Orleans a little more. Um, earlier this year, you participated in a panel discussion. Yeah, that questioned why there are so few prominent black chefs in New Orleans, a city with an otherwise strong black identity. Where did you land in answering that? I mean, uh, the truth, which is like the iron, because again, we don't, uh, there isn't, uh, well, first of all, there isn't like an honest acknowledgement of this. Like people say uh, there aren't many black chefs, but then nobody wants to admit complicity. Like why aren't there many black chefs? Why, if, the, if there's a list of 10, be 10 best restaurants in New Orleans, you know, half of them are, are um, uh, white, for example, is because white owners and, and our restaurateurs take up space in that list. Um, and if we're talking about the effects of racism, but we're not talking about um, the uh, um, actors in the sort of like racism that exists, then we're not talking about anything. You know, so if we can't, if we can admit that there's racism, but we can't admit that we are racist, then what the fuck are we talking about? Like, we're just like going around in circles and looking for an excuse not to change things. Yeah, so Atlanta Magazine's former restaurant critic Corby Cummer said something similar in his farewell review, which was a kind of assessment of the 
dining landscape here. This was in December 2015. He wrote, most disappointing is not enough black chefs and owners, something I'd hoped would go with a diverse restaurant crowds and staff. Todd Richards turned out to be the only black chef whose restaurant I reviewed. What can be done to make the back of the house as diverse as the front? Culinary schools should recruit more diversity and local business owners should give priority to chefs and restaurant operators of color when it comes to loans or small business assistance. What do you think of that? So I love that you, that you sent me that question. Um, so I host, I host these dinners and I travel. Um, and I think I did this last year. I was in uh, Durham, uh, thanks to Andrea. I don't know if she's here in the room, but yeah. Um, thank you. And in, in the dinner, something like incredible happened that happens you know, at all my dinners is, so we talk about blackness, right? And you know, I serve Nigerian food and people discuss race. And uh, a black woman sort of like stood up and she was talking about like this very personal experience um, about how she was discriminated against, um, how she was ignored at uh, a department store um, and how she was ignored for other white people. Like, so the attendant was talking to her, and then as soon as the white person came up, like, totally just, like, turned away and started talking to the white people. And it happened, like, twice. And then she connected that sort of, like, pain and experience to um, just the history, her personal history, and how racism manifests continuously in her life. And uh, obviously there's, like, sympathy for that in the room. And inevitably, this always happens, you know. Um, there was a white lady, well-meaning and wonderful, and she wanted to respond to that, to, to that uh, um, sentiment. And um, her response was, uh, when I was nine years old, I wanted to get a pair of Nikes, but I couldn't afford Nikes. So, uh, sorry, I wanted Nikes, but my, my mother uh, said, no, you can't get Nikes, you can get an off-store brand and I was mad. So my grandmother, who was a, a, a Holocaust um, survivor, came to me and said, don't be angry because when I was nine, I was in Dachau. And I was just like listening to her. I'm like, where the fuck is she going with this? Like, what are you saying? You know? Like this was like an honest attempt to like connect with somebody else's pain and struggle. And she had like distanced herself by like generations, by like years, by like, she was talking about fucking Germany. Like, it was just, like, weird. And that is indicative of this writing where, because um, I read the entire article, and in nowhere does this, who I'm sure is a wonderful um, fella, he doesn't, like, take responsibility. He externalizes the, um, the problem. He's like, I wish we had covered more uh, black-owned restaurants. Like, why the fuck didn't you? You know, I would, like they, they are out there. Like, why? Why didn't you do it? Um, and so, like, we have to we have to be honest about um, the things that we're doing and the things that we're choosing not to do, and the things that, by definition of the system that we live in, are obf uh, obfuscated for us because they maintain a particular order and reality. Um, so this is not an indictment, but it's like, I hope, a provocation that we start thinking more critically and that, um, you know, when we feel the sentiment to sympathize, like, we should check that and then examine our role in the systems that we are uh, critiquing. Yeah, we've been talking about media and writers, but we have a lot of chefs in the room, so can you explain, like, other ways in which you see 
us being complicit here and, and um, like how this plays out in the food community and yeah. how to make changes. So I think that, you know, you know the, the popular thing is like to a hammer, uh, everything looks um, like a nail. To a chef, everything looks um, like a meal. And when you see something, you think about like, how can I cook this or what can I do with this ingredient? I mean, I mean, people even use like fucking like bark in their food. Like, so every like little thing becomes uh, a component in a dish. So if we as a community look um, or have as our organizing principle um, how we can transform things into food, then that's a problem. Right, because then we don't sort of like understand the role that food serves in the larger um, society. Like food is a subset of culture, and food is informed by the larger culture. And the larger culture, the dominant culture, the history of America, is um, based on an ideology of whiteness and white supremacy. This country was founded um, uh, initially through the dispossession of land, the killing of indigenous people. We don't even talk about that, you know? Like, that doesn't even come into our um, consciousness as often as it should. You know, this country was, um, was built on the backs of, of slaves. So my point is to, I guess, to address racism, um, to get past racism, which I'm sure everybody wants to do, we have to get through it. And that's what um, a fellow named um, Eduardo Bonilla um, Silva says in his book, he says we have to get through it. And so every, to, to be more specific and answer your question, as chefs, everything we do that happens in the kitchen, because you live in America, everything you do is a reproduction of the racial status quo. And so there are things that are apparent, like where, like who do you hire? Who, who is in your uh, management team? Where do you choose to, to locate? Are you going to an area that is cheaper and maybe has um, a certain kind of uh, uh, um, racial demographic? And is that racial demographic reflected in your, in your staff and in your um, customer base? Like all of these choices and all of these realities are, are predicated on white supremacy. And so if you're thinking about your business or your restaurant through the lens of food, then this, everything I've said doesn't make sense to you. You know, it's like fucking ridiculous. But if you're thinking of this through the underlying ideology which, you know, animates the system that, that we live in, then I think things become apparent to you. Like, how many times in your, in your life do you see, like, a person of color? And, and what is your relationship with that person? Like, are, are they serving you? Um, are you, or are, or are you, or is the sort of like power dynamic shifted? Um, and so I don't have like a prescription of, of what folks can do in this room um, to sort of like change the order because I don't think that's my, um, that's my role. Uh, and I also think that the, the I, I think that the problem is I think that the problem is, is uh, uh, the reality is, is contextual. It depends on who you are, where you are. But I think it, it's important to, to change the lens. You know, like everything shouldn't be a meal. You know, that's not what the shit is about. It's because things are a meal that, that we condone, um, you know, the, you know, enslaved people serving us fish, you know, and, and seafood, you know, because we are focused on the wrong things.
I think that's a Drake song. I want to get to questions, but I do have one more question. Because you have, you have had a specific prescription before. Um, like oh. you've talked about the need for white people to willingly give up some things. Yeah. At least as far as, you know, the southern food narrative. Um, well, I, 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 I would yeah, just like say... You challenged I would just John say, T, right, yeah, to give up his job. Yeah. John T. Edge of Southern Fruitways Alliance. And he said no. He was like, a great right. <laughs> I love my job. I'm then gonna... you wrote an article together. That's all. Uh, uh, John T. is a friend. So, yeah. uh, But so I, I would say, like, look at this room. This is a mostly white room. I think it's a mostly male room. Um, uh, lots of women here, which is uh, wonderful. Um, I, I would say, like... Giving, giving up is, is the beginning, is the painful um, um, beginning. So if, we, if, if there are 10 spots available and there are 10 white people there, that is not representative of the world that we live in. Yeah, so some people have to give shit up. But I think, like, ultimately, where we, where we do get to when we give, when we, quote, unquote, give things up, I think we get to a, a place that is more um, rewarding because we are challenging... Um, our ideas of what the world looks like. And I think in that sort of like, the transformation that happens through challenging the status quo, I think it's, um, I think it's beautiful. But if you're looking for specific things, like yeah, we need to hire more um, black writers and editors. We need, to, we need to profile more black chefs. We need more funding for black owned um, restaurants. And, um, and we need to stop excusing the reality as the status quo, like this is just the way it is. This is what is like. There's nothing that we can do. That's a fucking lie. There's so much that, that can be done, and I think that um, w when we acknowledge that, then maybe some, maybe things will start changing. Okay, it's time for some fucking questions. So, um, <laughs> does anyone want to jump into this discussion? Anyone want to challenge the ideas? Here we go. maybe, but I, I totally agree with your criticism of the celebration of turkey and wolf, and I was struggling to think of examples uh, of similar restaurants from a black restaurateur, and I thought of Red Rooster in Harlem. I'm just curious what your thoughts are on what they've done in a Harlem context, if you're familiar with them. Yeah, a, a little bit. Uh, I haven't been there. I, th I think um, they're cool. It's interesting, though. Can anybody here name uh, a prominent black Chef nationally. Uh, okay, the first name is like Marcus um, Samuelson, right? That's generally like the most, you know, where is he from? Ethiopia, Sweden. Yeah. Sweden. So I think, I think it's interesting that the most prominent black chef in America is an American. Like that says something, you know. And I don't know if you guys want me to say what that says, but it says something, you know. What does it say? It says that America has like an anti-black racism problem. And we use the, you know, model minority myth to obviate that fact. Like we say, well, look at this man who is black and is um, succeeding. So what's wrong with you other black people? Well, that man isn't a, isn't a, a product of the concentrated racial hate and history that um, has been the reality of black people in America. I think you just want to know if you like the red rooster, but okay, that's good. No, like, like the food? I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, another question? 
Oh, come on, it's not that scary. Okay. This is a, a topic that some of us have talked about in a different chef group, which is the idea of like the white savior concept, moving into small or disenfranchised neighborhoods and opening up uh, moderate ethnic foods and kind of getting celebrated as like, oh, they're creating jobs for all these minorities in this community and providing all, instead of lifting up or providing funds for, um, you know, people who are actually from that community or minorities from that community to open restaurants. And we're seeing that happen in Los Angeles and Detroit, particularly in Detroit. And some of my friends that are chefs in Detroit are really angry about, you know, there's all these small independent businesses coming up who are minority, minority owned, but they're getting overshadowed by hipstery kind of like dining clubs. Um, and maybe you can speak to that of like the slippery slope of like people who hear what you're saying and then are like, I'm gonna do something about that and then kind of just perpetuate more of the systematic racism by being like a white chef with money that comes into an area and just propagates their food. Yeah, I think like the notion that uh, providing jobs is a reason to um, sort of like act out a certain, uh, you know, theater of, um, uh, of equality is ridiculous. McDonald's is providing jobs, right? But what kind of jobs? And who here is like supporting that sort of um, practice? The real, uh, the thing that we have to talk about is um, how do we, you know, how do we truly transfer power? How do we sort of like move the, um, the factors of production and, and ownership away from um, certain hands to include more people, you know? So we have to talk about uh, who owns what and, and, and how that ownership sort of like swells the wealth of those uh, marginalized um, communities and how that wealth is transferred and continues to build and grow those um, communities. Like folks who have been marginalized can use a job, of course, but what they can use more than a job is um, the wealth and the security that um, helps them create jobs for other people and like sustains their um, individual life and the life, the, the life of their communities and their sort of like generational um, success. I think we have time for one more. Anybody else wanna bring up one more? Okay, right over here, thanks. Uh, you know, I, I, I very much appreciate your commentary, and obviously you're a very astute observer. You know, uh, for me, uh, I make food, you know, and this thing about, to a chef, it's just a meal. You know, I understand that, and that there obviously is a broader context and a, and, um, a richer, uh, a, a, a more extensive dimension if we don't make good food, we don't have anything to say, you know? Uh, so if we lose focus on making good food, then we, don't, we can't contribute to the discussion anywhere. That's a tension, I, I feel, between what you're saying and what we're doing, you know? So how do we navigate that? I'm trying to understand that question. Yeah. Okay. So we exist as people who make food, uh, and we, we can continue to do our work if we make really delicious food, right? So in order to make delicious food, you have to focus on that, 
You know, we're focused. You said to a chef, it's just a meal, right? So if a chef isn't focused on the meal, then, and he does, and a chef, she doesn't offer a really delicious meal, then she loses her platform, her ability to uh, act and, and influence, you know? So there's a tension there. I don't think making good food precludes you from doing the right thing in other spaces. Like, we, folks are interested in, in sourcing um, well. They're interested in, I think, hopefully hiring and paying well. Uh, I think, like, extending that interest uh, and that commitment to racial equity and justice, I don't think it's, it's, it's asking for too much. Like, we can walk and chew gum. Is that the expression in America? Yeah. So, yeah, it's possible. Walk and chew gum, right? That's what people say. So social justice and cooking can go hand in hand. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Um, ladies and gentlemen, Julia Bainbridge and Tunde Wei, thank you. Because of schedule changes at this year's annual Chef's Collab Summit, Executive Director of Georgia Organics, Alice Rolls, was unable to give her originally scheduled talk. So we sat down with her separately. Here, Rolls discusses the challenges of making farm-to-table a reality and her proposals for how to overcome it. The author Barbara Kingsolver once said that a good short story delivers large truths in tight spaces. So in 10 minutes, let's focus on this goal. Let's act and tell the truth. Uh, in 19, uh, 2016, the Tampa Bay... Times food critic Laura Riley called us out in her Farm to Fable series. She said fiction was often the daily special at farm to table restaurants throughout Florida. The public truly wants to have authentic food, but chefs and farmers are challenged logistically and financially to make farm to table happen. You actually have two of the hardest professions, chefing and farming, with fragile financial margins, and we're essentially, we've created the equivalent of a really bad wine pairing. So now the public is losing faith and chefs are turning away. Local and organic food is actually trending downward, according to a 2017 report from the National Restaurant Association. Chefs have been leading this movement. I often say that this movement would be about 20 years behind if it hadn't been for the chef community. The question is, are we going to roll over? Or are we going to have a second coming? So let's act and tell the truth. There's a natural tension between artistry and commercial interests. If you, if you travel the seas from cooking and culinary and community, and then you get to commercial and capitalization, you can almost feel the soul being sucked away. A chef might have the best of intentions, but at the end of the day, you have to make a living. It's the third leg of the sustainability stool. The exact same thing is happening in farming. It's why less than 1% of U.S. agriculture is organic. Farmers need to survive, and it's harder to farm without pesticides and antibiotics. But capital markets don't instill authenticity at its heart, and it's not what galvanizes public engagement. So what we need is a nudge, a big one. At Georgia Organics, we are really big fans of nudge theory or activation campaigns. This is where you spark change by moving people from will to action. We have to get outside of our own heads and think about meeting people where they are. So activation requires motivation, persuasion, a little friendly pressure, and sometimes incentives. You don't want to nag, you want to nudge. 
That means you need to know your audience and discover what will move someone to act. So Nudge uses human psychology psychology and behavioral economics and seeks to change people's choice architecture. So I'd like to share two examples of how Georgia Organics has zeroed in on activation points to be successful. The first was with our farm to school program. So we work statewide and if we want statewide adoption of farm to school, we had to look at who are the gatekeepers. Well, when you look around, the primary people are the school nutrition directors. So how do we mobilize them? These are individuals who care deeply about kids' health, but they're working in a bureaucratic environment with microscopic budgets, trying to do the best they can. And for that, they are much maligned. If you think about it, everybody loves to complain about school lunch. So our whole strategy became about recognizing these individuals first and foremost. We created a framework for farm to school metrics and an associated annual awards program called the Golden Radish. We made it easy to start and be part of this and a pathway for greater involvement. We recruited the state superintendent of schools and the commissioners of agriculture and public health to present the awards and throughout the year we provided the tools and training to help districts do farm to school. So our first year in 2014, we had 30 districts apply and receive a golden radish. And it was very interesting because when I looked out on the audience to see, you saw nutrition directors coming and driving four or five hours from the south part of the state up to Atlanta to receive their award. And I thought, hmm, you know, this, this means something to these folks. So next month, in, uh, when we present the Golden Radish Awards, we're going to have 75 school districts receiving awards. So in just four years, we've gotten 40% of school districts in Georgia pursuing farm to school. And when they come to these awards, you can see them exchanging information, looking at how they can do things better, learning from each other, and just a really wonderful opportunity to see community being established through farm to school. So recognition became a really key part of that. And so throughout the year, we're constantly sending um, press out to their local communities and lifting them not only statewide but also within their own community and it really worked. Our second activation campaign was called the 100 Organic Farms Campaign. In 2015 Georgia had more certified naturally farmed certified naturally farm uh, grown farms than any other state but only 75 certified organic farms. Our own fa member farms at Georgia Organics were not going the extra mile to get certified. Well, why does this matter? Because if we don't stand up and be counted, we will not move the political needle on the research, the extension, the infrastructure, seed supply, that we need to accelerate organics in the South. And if we're gonna make a dent in climate change, we really, really need to stand up and be counted. When you uh, think about the, I, I, Paul Hawkins' new book, Drawdown, looks at the top 100 solutions for climate change. And of the top 20, eight of those are related to food and agriculture. So we have a significant role to play in these arenas. So to move and shift our own farmers, as well as convince larger conventional farms to consider going to organic, we looked at the barriers to entry for our farm members and worked to overcome them. Those primarily were cost, know-how, and just general inertia. We teamed up with the Georgia's Commissioner of Agriculture to get political buy-in, 
And we did some things like committing to pay, George Organics, committing to pay the extra 25% of certification cost share so a farmer could get 100% covered. We, spent, we sent two of our staff to intensive certification training so we could literally sit down with farmers and help them with their plan. And we created incentives like conference scholarships or eligibility to receive a tiny farmhouse for their own housing needs or agritourism. That's a $30,000 asset. So that was a carrot that we were able to dangle out there. Our goal was to get to 100 certified farms in two years. Well, we met that goal in 15 months, and then we went back to the commissioner to join with us for the 200 Organic Farms campaign. He was at our conference this year publicly, publicly saying, 200, ah, yeah, we can do better than that. And someone came up to me and asked how the hell we got our ag commissioner to say that. And all I can say is we nudged him. So how can we organize an activation campaign that will tell the truth of Farm to Table without becoming the food police? So here's my idea, and I really would love to get feedback from those in the chef community, as well as others in the food movement, to see how we can start nudging the truth. So I think this is what I would like to do. I would love to run a, a basically an organic farm booster campaign with restaurant chefs. The goal would be to build chef engagement and move beyond the early adopters into sort of that next light green group, um, build consumer demand, build farmer and restaurant prosperity, and increase the number of organic farms in Georgia. So I would start off with modest, achievable goals. So let's say if we said we want to get $150,000 in chef purchases from certified organic farms in Georgia. We could recruit 30 restaurants who agreed to spend $5,000 annually. So that's about $416 a month on certified organic produce from Georgia farms. That's achievable. Then we would try and simplify that transaction or the choice architect for those chefs and organize a chef-only certified organic farmer's market once a month at the turnip truck. Not, you know, every week, because that just becomes onerous. Um, we'd work with a local aggregator like the turnip truck to help create that market. We'd provide availability less. We'd serve lunch at the market to make it fun for chefs to interact with one another. We'd work to understand the needs of chefs and translate that to the farmers to improve product availability and consistency over time. And we'd record those purchases at the market to make tracking pain-free. We could run progress reports where we hold each other accountable and nudge each other. And at the end of the year, we would mobilize a really good consumer activation campaign by promoting the hell out of our farm boosters. We'd use press, social media, authentic signage for restaurants to use, and more. Maybe we'd even recognize the best overall or most improved. A chef could also include their other purchases that they make outside of the farmer, chef-only farmer's market uh, to increase their totals. But the point is, is to make it easy. So I really need a grant to help pull this off initially. This idea has not gotten off the ground, but I'm searching. Um, and I think it, could, it, look, it creates a powerful way um, that I think could blossom immensely. We could build authenticity for participating restaurants, drive restaurant patrons, put dollars in pockets of farmers, and inspire organic certification. And we grow this movement beyond the early adopters, which I think is key. So I feel confident that in a second year of such an initiative or such a campaign, 
we would have at least 20 more restaurants clamoring to participate. So over time, that 150,000 becomes 300,000 becomes 600,000 as we hold ourselves accountable and we're authentic in the way we're presenting farm to table to the community. So this is just one idea on how chefs could lead the second charge, how we could use nudge tactics uh, to really move beyond where we are right now, which is a lot of confusion. And there are many other ways I think we could crack this nut, but the more we can tackle this as a community and utilize human psychology and nudge and support chefs in this journey, the more we can rebuild public trust to move us beyond farm to fable. Authenticity really can't be faked. So let's activate and tell the truth. <laughs>